AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, We guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets Podcast. My guest today is legendary music producer, philanthropist, the straw that stirs the drink, Bob Ezra. Bob? That's very funny. I've never had that intro before. The straw that stirs the drink. I like that. Well, those people, that's what they said about Reggie Jackson when he joined the Yankees. He said that Uh about himself. And you're so different from other record producers in that, especially people who started when you started, most of them are done. Okay, but you have ventured into other areas, and I certainly know that you are literally the straw that stirs the drink. You make things happen. You make music rising happen. You made a lot of other things. We'll get into some of that. But right now, you are where, Bob? Right now, I'm in Toronto, which... um you know, which is where Jan and I came. We were we were actually uh, in the Bahamas when things started to blow up. I was writing for the book, you know, that I was that I've been threatening to write for years. So I was writing, and then um, you know, one night she just said, "You know, I don't I don't think we ought to get stuck here. This could be very bad." So we came up to Toronto, um, where we have a home, and and then they shut all the borders. I was going to head back down to Nashville, but that's just not going to happen for a while. How much time do you spend where? How much time are you in Toronto, Nashville, on the road at this point in time? Yes. Yes, I do. <laughs> okay, okay. I'll leave it at that. You're someone... Uh... You know what? Listen, um, I, love, I love our home here in Toronto, and, um, and I love our place in the Bahamas because it's just a little place, but I love the ocean, and just looking out my window at the ocean every morning is beautiful. But I love I love Nashville for working and um, and and living too. You know, it's a happening city, as you know. A lot of people there are doing some really exciting and interesting things, and it's really easy to work there. It's 
perhaps the easiest place I've ever recorded. Uh, amplify that for us. Well, you know, first of all, um, it's a it's a, a music recording town. So New York is a music town, but it's a music offices town and business town. There is a lot of music going on there that's being recorded, but it isn't the backbone of the whole place. Whereas, you know, Nashville was really, uh, it's really got three industries. It's got insurance, healthcare, and music as the primary industries of Nashville. And, and in, in Nashville, there are studios every 50 paces. It's, it's quite remarkable, at least, you know, in my neighborhood. Like the two doors down is a studio across the street directly is a studio. It's Ron Fair's studio. Ron moved there. And uh, right behind him is, uh, is Blackbird, which is maybe the biggest studio in Nashville and certainly the largest mic collection in Nashville, possibly the world. And, and you've got a, uh, you have a cadre of really professional session musicians, like the top of the food chain. And these, these were all people who, you know, they became virtuosic and, uh, and probably... Uh, genre was too small for them, and 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 yet, if you're not in a band or or doing something as a recording artist, it's hard to make a lot of money. But they discovered that their talents are very valuable to people like me and and country artists who are solo artists and and uh, pop singers who don't have a band and things like that. So we hire these people to make the music, and and you can get a band together of people who are literally. The best, the best at their instrument in the world, in Nashville. And I often do, you know, I often have like an amazing group of players who are relatively unknown to the outside world, but who in the music world are legendary. So we have a, we have a room full of legends. Okay, just go a little deeper, because the session musician world has died in Los Angeles can these people you've uh, called to do sessions, can they make a living in Nashville being session people? Oh, they can make a very good living in Nashville being session musicians. Some of them are, you know, some of them are making a significant amount of money. Others are having to augment that with, you know, other forms of playing, like going out on the road with certain artists or playing, um, you know, after hours and uh, at shows within Nashville. But you can make a living in Nashville and not be the featured performer, which is hard to say about just about any place else. You can Absolutely. make a good living. And there's lots of them. They come from all over the world. They're, you know, like on the first session, the first, um, uh, you know, first session that I did in Nashville where I used session players, one of the guitar players was a kid from Russia who was like a shredder. He was an awesome guitar player, but he found, uh, you know, that he could actually make a living coming to Nashville. He was an insane reader, and, and, uh, and he had a great memory, and he found, he found a part for himself right away. And, and there are some drummers in that town that, uh, you know, I would put up against the greatest drummers in the greatest bands that we've ever seen. And, and the same thing with, you know, keyboard players and... and if you need someone to play a sackbut, as you often do, Bob, you can pick up the musician's directory, and there's a dude in Nashville who can play the sackbut, you know, or, and, or there's, a, there's a woman who can clog dance if you need the sound of, you know, dancing on your record, <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, there's anything you can think of. Like one day I was producing somebody, and I just had this crazy notion. It was a sort of uh, crossover track. And this was before um, 
this was before Mumford and Sons, but I had this idea that I really wanted to hear a lead banjo on this pretty rocking track. So I, I called Bella Fleck. <laughs> and I said, Bella, what are you doing this afternoon? He said, well, I, I, you know, I got a meeting at five o'clock uh, on Music Row, but I'm not busy now. What's up? And I said, can you come over? I, I need a banjo solo. He was there within an hour. And the, and the people I was working with, when he walked in the door, they just looked at me like, you got to be kidding. But, <laughs> but that's the town that it is. Emmy Lou Harris loves to do backing vocals. Really? For example. Yes. <laughs> She's, and, and, you know, and, and there's lots of, um, you know, very well-known people who, who, I mean, Vince Gill plays lead guitar on one of the Alice Cooper, Cooper tracks from an album years ago. I, you know, I invited Vince to come on and he shredded. He was unbelievable. He was so good that, that Alice's touring band, which has, you know, professional shredders in it, they could not cop his solo. So that song never went into, never went into the show. <laughs> Okay, you certainly, uh, as we go deeper, have been in many genres, but you're most famous for the rock genre. Nashville was historically a country town. Uh, Is it more types of music in Nashville now, or the players can do everything? How does your uh, work meld with the Nashville scene? Most of the players, as I said, they're people who come from elsewhere. And uh, a lot of them, including Dan Huff, who's one of the the top producers of all time in Nashville, um, you know, they come from rock bands that maybe didn't, you know, didn't quite make it or they did make it and then they stopped. Um, or they come from jazz or they come from classical. There's a great string player in Nashville that can do anything you can think of. You, you need anything that's got strings on it, he can play it. And he's a classical violinist who moved to Nashville, and now he's doing country fiddle. And, he, and But he, at the same time, he can do hard anger fiddle, which is a Norwegian instrument, and he can play uh, cello and you know, just anything you want. So, um, so you have players who are very versatile. Okay. Certainly in the old days, for all the cockers like us, you know, you had to practice in order to break into the scene. Supposedly, Dwayne Allman took his guitar even to the bathroom. Certainly, you have the elite players in Nashville, but do you think this is a problem today where people can promote their music online, that they're not as skilled in their instruments as they once were? I don't think that's quite true. I think that the operative words are their own instrument. And what's happened in the world is that instruments have changed. And kids play, they play computers, they play um, sequencers, they, they play drum machines and pads and, and samplers and anything they can get their hands on. And they make these very crafty uh, compositions that, you know, they show that they, they can play their medium, whatever that medium might be. And I think they're easily as good as any kid who was woodshedding on lead guitar when I was 16 or 17 years old. And then bleeding into another element where we have commonality. Now, you talk to a lot of these great players, and it turns out they learned how to play in school, like Nathan East. He learned how to play in school. I know that's something you have a a great affinity for. Can you tell us about that? I think that in cultures where music was uh, ingrained as a part of the learning experience and where people were actually taught how to express themselves using music, that you ended up with people who had... Uh, you know, not just a greater affinity for the 
for the art form, but a different way of seeing and, and thinking and hearing and expressing, you know, different way of speaking. They found out they don't have to use words. They use sound and stuff. And once you start practicing a new language, once you really get into it, it becomes like an infection. You can't get rid of it. You, you dream about it. You think about it. You live with it all the time. And we're missing that in North America now. We're missing that in, in a way that many European nations are, you know, they still have. I mean, why are the Swedes so successful in America in pop music? Why is, why is worldwide pop music defined by Swedish people? It's because they have a phenomenal music education system, and it goes beyond their regular school, beyond high school. There's a postgraduate a uh, whole set of po postgraduate schools that you can go to to learn about songwriting and producing and, and, uh, and how to get better at the instrument that you play. Here in, in North America, we've got like, you know, a few schools that people can go to where this is true. But for the most part, uh, music has been removed. It's no longer considered to be um, an essential course. It's considered to be an elective. And you know that with shrinking budgets and school boards that are just trying to make ends meet, the first stuff that goes is the, you know, are all the, the electives, especially the ones that require equipment and investment. So music education has hurt a lot in North America since that became true. When I was a kid, music was one of the courses I had to take. By the way, so was art. And so was literature. In not, in not helping the entire child to evolve, that uh, communicating, emotional, passionate little being, and not and not allowing them the ex all the expression that's at their at their disposal naturally, while we're trying to teach them, we're kind of cubbyholing them into a much much uh, grayer, less exciting existence. So you end up with a bunch of people who sit in the corner and look down, whether it's at their cell phone or their keyboard or whatever. What we really want is people who get together and, and, uh, and share and, and sing together and play together and, and create things together. Because what we need right now is to create a whole new world, actually. You're not going to do that with, you're not going to do that with small thinkers. What do you mean in terms, is you talking about specifically about music or the world at large, a whole new no, world? No, I mean the world at large. I mean, when you look at what's going on in the United States while we're talking, there are riots in the streets of 25 cities in the United States as a reaction to an on-camera murder, the death of someone that we all got to watch. I'll tell you a little story. So I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. In fact, I'll just say that when in a situation where I was commenting on the video of uh, Eric Garner being s strangled to death, um, to someone who was in the healthcare business, I'll just leave it that general, I just said, I just, I just looked at it in, in complete disbelief, and, and my stomach was turning, and I looked at the guy, and I just went, can you believe that? And he goes, no, man. He says, you know, my friend's a policeman. He won't even go in their neighborhoods anymore. And I just turned to the guy, and I just said, are you shitting me? You're a healthcare professional and that's what you got out of this you're a person who's supposedly dedicated to saving human life and that's what you got out of this picture and at that moment i mean i just realized that we have a, a systemic endemic disease in our culture 
And it's not just America. People like to point fingers at America, but for, you know, it's, it's happening any place where the predominant culture was white and uh, Northern European, even more so than Southern. Now, I was in a cab once and the driver told me in Toronto that more different languages are spoken in Toronto than any other Berg on the planet. So yeah. one has to ask, you know, we are really uh, inward looking in the United States as someone who is certainly traveling a lot in both countries. What is the same or different about Canada? How much time do we have, Bob? <laughs> Well, we have plenty of time, but we don't have two hours to talk about Canada. No, I didn't think so. But you know what? Look, I was in L.A. during the riots. Uh, I actually went to work in the basement of the first AME church in Watts uh, for months after the riots um, and working on food distribution and other things where, where I thought my efforts would be more useful than being in a studio making rock records at, at that time. It was a critical moment, wasn't it? It was a moment where we really thought we may lose our town altogether. And then we had this organization called Rebuild LA, which I also uh, took part in. And at least we recognized at the time that we were facing massive uh, institutional and structural problems within our society. We tried to change them. I, I'm saddened by what I see now because it's clear. Uh, the evidence shows we failed. In Canada, the primary difference in Canada is that there wasn't a slave trade in Canada. There were slaves in the East Coast, by the way. There were whole colonies of slaves in the, that people don't even know about in Nova Scotia. Um, and there are still little townships that are just, they're all black. They're all African-Canadian. Um, but primarily, the, the people uh, uh, who came from uh, the, the West Indies and came from Africa came here of their own volition. And they, you know, they, they came to make a good life for themselves and for their families and to find their fortune, just like everybody else. And this is a nation of immigrants all the way around. So the, uh, the Canadians have tried to be a what they have referred to as a multicultural society. Sometimes it works really well. Sometimes it doesn't work very well at all. There's a guy on TV, uh, on CTV, um, who does an entertainment show. And he is um, an African-Canadian, I guess I would call him. He may be um, uh, a West Indian Canadian um, originally, but he refers to himself as a black man. He's a black man who saw that video and who was then on the Canadian version of The View the next day. And they asked him how he felt. He started off being a media guy. He started off saying, I'm fine and things are, you know, it's really terrible. We have to work and so on. And then slowly but surely, he began to fall apart. And then he lost words. And he said, you know me, I've never at a loss for words. And then he started to cry. And then he started to say, you know, I don't want to be this guy. I don't want to be the angry black man. But the truth is, I am. I'm an angry black man because I have to watch what I say, what I look like, what I do every time I enter a room. And that's up here, you know, where people like to think that we're okay. It's everywhere. And it's worse in the United States because there's um, more polarization right now in the U.S. than I've ever seen anywhere. I mean, I've, you know, I've, I lived in, I've lived in the United States and been a United, an American citizen for decades and decades. I'm a student of America. I love America. You know, I chose it. It didn't choose me. So I came, I came because I wanted to be there. 
and and because I wanted to be active and I wanted to be political and I wanted to get involved. So for me, it's very difficult to see where we are right now. For me, after after being a member of SNCC, after marching, after you know, as I say, working in the basement of the first AME church after after working with mentoring and after school programs and all the time and energy that I put in to have to admit to myself that a lot of this was really not for anything at all. Okay, let's talk about music in the era of chaos. Certainly when you started out in the folk scene in uh, Toronto, you're aware of that. Folk music drove protests. Certainly 10 years later, 8 years later, we had... uh, Literally 50 years ago, Kent State, we had uh, Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young, Ohio. What is music's place? Where is music relative to the cutting edge of culture and all these problems today? Listen, I think music has always been the voice of the people. It's it's an easy way to communicate. And it it has been since we were primitive beings and didn't even have words. We just sing out and somebody would, would repeat it back to us and we knew we had a friend. So music's always been at the forefront of everything, always. And it's always told the news. It's always had the news before the news was news. As I was growing up, it was a pretty comfortable but very white environment. My dad was the first Jewish doctor allowed on staff at the Toronto General Hospital. That happened in the middle 50s in Toronto. Until the 60s, we had restricted clubs where there were no Jews, no Blacks, no, not, I think not even Catholics allowed. And, and Canada had residential schools. These are things where they would take First Nations children from their families, out of their tribe, put them in a church-run school so they could learn to be white and Protestant or Catholic or whatever the religion was of the school. And they would not let them go home. And they wouldn't let them speak their own language. They called them residential schools. The last one was closed in the early 90s. So there was always here a voice that had to be heard. And the only way it could be heard was through what you would call sort of underground or alternative media. And it was coming out of music. That was the place. You couldn't see it on TV. You you certainly wouldn't get it in in nice establishments or, or proper society. You got it on the streets. You got it in on Yorkville Avenue, which during the 60s, during the middle 60s and late 60s, was kind of the third leg of the folk stool. There was Greenwich Village, the Gaslight District, and Yorkville Village, where everyone played. And, and people came from all over to do it. My uncle was a half owner in a club on Yorkville, which was a terrific uh, advantage for me as a kid. You know, he, In fact, he played a really large role in my life in, in in turning me on to all kinds of music and and stereo equipment and all that sort of stuff. He was a cool dude. But he had this club called the Penny Farthing where I would play in the basement with braces on my teeth badly to four or five people who couldn't afford to sit in the main room. And, um, and upstairs, there were artists going through like this beautiful blonde girl from out west called Joni Anderson who had just come to Toronto, had not yet married Chuck Mitchell, had just found out she was pregnant. When I spoke to Joni about it, she said, did you know I was pregnant? I said, I would have married you anyway. I was, you know, I was so, but she was older than me, you know, she wasn't looking at at the kid with the braces in the basement. But, you know, Jose Feliciano played his first North American gig in that room and and lots of other people. And then next door, there was a band called um, The... 
I think the band was called the Minor Bird, and that was Neil Young, Rick James, and they were a soul band. They like horns and and dance moves and everything, <laughs> and and a, and a couple of doors down from there, then we had a band called the Sparrow, which was John Kay uh, and Mars Bonfire, who went on to become Steppenwolf. But but around the corner, these two um, African American folk singers called Joe and Eddie played their first Canadian gig. They came up there. They were protest singers, like a, in the real sense of the word. They had a song on the radio called There's a Meeting Here Tonight. I don't know if you remember that. You may be too young. We've talked about it before, so that's how I know it. Okay. So, um, and they had stories to tell, and they spoke with a Southern drawl, and they were just from another planet, listening to them play. At the same time, my uncle also discovered Lonnie Johnson in the, in the, in the men's toilet of a Chicago hotel, where he had been hiding out for almost 20 years from a paternity suit. My uncle, the lawyer, said to him, you know, Lonnie, there is a statute of limitations, but he wouldn't believe him. He didn't want to come out of the toilet. So my uncle said, okay, I'm going to bring you to Canada. They can't extradite you from Canada for a paternity suit. And he, so he came. And they built him a club across the street from, from the Penny Farthing, the main club. They called it Lonnie's Place, where he played the last three and a half or four years of his life. He died in Toronto. And I used to go over there and watch him play. And... Um, and, and he would tell stories. And he, and, but, but I mean, this was a living icon. This was an emblem and a kind of, you know, human diorama almost right there in front of you of the American South and the African-American experience in the American South as, as told through the blues. And so what role does music play? Like, I wouldn't have known any of that. What role does music play? How does the edge? Well, let me be very specific. When we had the riots you mentioned earlier in 1992, the light went off over my head. Everything Ice-T was saying, everything NWA were saying was true. true. Uh, can we point to a similar situation in today's music? Wow. You know... I don't want to be the old guy who's complaining about what, what you know, the new artists are doing or not doing. I find uh, an absence of, of community in pretty much everything. It's not just music. But um, I don't find people standing up. I don't find people speaking out. I hear very little that, that makes you sit back and catch your breath because it is so powerful and relevant. I haven't heard a I haven't heard a song like the Hurricane, you know, in I don't know decades. And and is that because we've become so self centered? It maybe you know, and maybe the president of the United States is the perfect um, you know the perfect representation of it. He's our avatar. He's an avatar of all of our worst impulses. We're all we're all uh, narcissistic. We're all self involved. We're all me first, and then everything else after. And everybody wants to get rich. Like, I, I don't see the same uh, political com uh, compulsion of firing music up now that I did when I was a kid. Like, most of these people that I'm talking about and people that, that are very famous now and got famous then, they just wanted to be heard and they wanted to speak out against fill in the blank. 
Okay, and what do you think, even though it's hard to predict, will be the result of the today's protests in 25 cities as opposed to the localized uh, riots in Los Angeles in the 90s? Well, it can go it can go one of two ways, Bob. This can be uh, this could be the cathartic moment. This could be the moment where everyone realizes how desperate a situation this is for the African American population, just the non-white population of America, but particularly them. Since the first African was brought to their, to American shores in chains and given an animal name, so maybe that's what happens. That we all learn. Uh, and and then we topple the people who are driving division and, and driving us away from being able to solve our, our cultural and social problems, and we elect somebody who's actually got a heart and is empathetic and will, will help change occur, that might happen. Or we may find that with more and more destruction of private po- property, that people start worrying about themselves again, and they start leaning to the law and order ticket. We've seen it so many times before. And he stands up and says, I'm the only one that can save you. Like all these governors, these Democrats, these people, they're, you know, they're just a bunch of wet noodles. They, they should be thrown out of office. So what we need here is some angry, you know, we need some vicious dogs and big guns. And as much as I would hate that that might be the result, I fear that it may be. Well, that's certainly what happened in 68 with Nixon getting elected. But let's go back to Toronto. So your father was a doctor. How many kids in the family? Um, Five biological kids and three adopted. I have to ask, uh, the three were adopted. What was the motivation? What happened there? I think it's under the heading of some guys never learn. Um, No, it's just my parents were professional parents. They loved it. They loved being parents. They loved raising children. And when my youngest uh, of the first five, my youngest sister had her bat mitzvah, which means she was 13 years old. My mom started to have sort of advanced um, empty nest syndrome <laughs> before she ever left home. But she really started to, um, she, she just pined for another baby. And so they, they uh, adopted a young boy named Michael. Michael came to us with um, a, a terminal illness. We didn't know that. He came to us with a chronic disease that had something to do with my dad's specialty. Not entirely, but close. And it was a form of leukemia, something with which you are very familiar. Absolutely. And, um, but we didn't know it at first. He just was a baby boy that was delivered and he was happy and he seemed great. But then he started to get these bony protrusions and, and his body in certain places and his eyes started to bulge. And my dad began to know, but couldn't tell anyone what he suspected was going on. And he was on a mad tear to get somebody around the world, anybody, a specialist, anyone that could help figure out how to save this child because the preponderance of outcome was, outcomes uh, uh, was that they would die before their second birthday. If they got through their second birthday, then they had um, you know, a 50% chance of maybe ever making it to age 10. So... This is what he lived with. Anyway, I don't want to drag this out, but the bottom line is um, we couldn't save him. And, and, uh, and here's a lesson for everybody who does music for a living or anything else. I was on my way to Chicago to work on Killer. We were recording at RCA there. 
and I got snowed in in Detroit. Our, our flight got diverted, and I uh, was left in Detroit airport, and, uh, and I heard my name paged. I knew Michael was sick. I didn't want to go, actually. I knew he was really sick. And my dad said, my dad was a kind of a workaholic, too. My dad said, you have an obligation. You have work. There are people waiting for you. You must go. So I said, okay, but um, I didn't feel great about it. So I heard my name page and my heart just sank. And I went and picked up the page. It turned out to be the guy that was running Paramount Records at the time, to whom I had delivered a Detroit record uh, by, you know, Mitch Ryder and the band Detroit. And he wanted to talk about a single, but I, he freaked me out so badly that I screamed at him on the phone and I just, don't you ever fucking call me like that again? I, you know, and, and I hung up on him and I apologized later, but it just blew my mind. I was so, and then I was relieved. Oh, thank God. It's all, it's not Michael. It's okay. I go on to uh, Chicago and sure enough, two nights later, um, I get a call from Alan McMillan, who was uh, Jack Richardson's partner and my boss at that time. And he said, I think you should probably come home. And, and so I went into the studio and I was kind of like, I was in a daze. I didn't know what to think and I didn't know what to do. The, the uh, manager of the studio was a really wise, uh, wonderful man named Dick Forbear. He took me out in the hallway and he said, listen. Nobody ever died for one of a rock and roll record. He said, you get on that plane and go home. And that may have been the most valuable lesson I've learned in my adult life. Nobody ever died for one of one of these things. And when it's important and your family's at stake or someone's health or, or, you can, or, or there's a riot going on and you need to go, you need to go. You need to go. You'll get a chance to finish later. And, and we did. And, you know, Killer was a, a big hit for Alice Cooper and stuff. But, yeah, that was a big deal. So then Michael died. Michael passed away. And literally one week after, as we were sitting around the table, Jewish people have Shiva. And when Shiva's over, you do this, you do this uh, ritual of you walk out the back door of your house and you walk back in the front door. Basically, you're leaving the grief behind and you're walking into your new life. The phone rang, seriously. We were sitting at the table. My dad goes, picks up the phone. He's talking for about 15 minutes. He comes back in. He's white as a sheet. And he looks at all of us and he said, that was a lawyer who just called me who had heard about Michael and, and what had happened. And he says there's a little girl for, for adoption. And do we want her? And everybody at the table was like, hell yeah. And, and my mom started to cry and we all, you know, we all sort of jumped up and down. And, and that's my little sister, Renana, who, you know, has three beautiful girls of her own. And, 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 um, and then after her came Judith. So that's how we ended up with eight kids. Long story. <laughs> in the hierarchy, where are you in the eight children? I'm the oldest. You're the oldest. Usually all the hopes and dreams were in the oldest and all the focus. Was that true in your family? Well, I think the hopes and dreams were in me, yes, because, you know, you're the first of everything. You're the first kid, the first grandkid for my grandparents and all that stuff. So, yes, people, they, I was, the, you know, I was the magic child. You know, I could do no wrong and all that stuff. But I, sh I proved them wrong very soon thereafter. You know, <laughs> I started, I was not. Uh, a well-behaved child. I, I was a happy kid, and I was always sweet 
to people. But I found a way around anything I didn't want to do, and particularly school, which I hated. I thought school was so slow. And, uh, and I was not going to be a doctor like my dad wanted me to be or a lawyer like my uncle was. I was just, I wanted to be, actually, I wanted to be an actor. I start because my brothers and I, we were, we were kid actors at the CBC when I was eight and they were, they were five and a half. We started doing television. How does that come together? Okay. One of the great things about this place is it's, it's like, you know, it's like a little village, the whole country. Everybody knows everybody. So my, my dad's best friend was a doctor married to uh, a Balinesian dancer. And only in Canada would the hot show on Saturday night be Balinesian dancing starring Garbett Roberts and, and uh, Inez, I don't think she called herself Staub at the time, but she was married to Dr. Staub. Anyway, so she said, do the kids ever want to come and see the studio? So my dad took the, the, my brothers who are redheaded twins, identical twins. And he took them, and they used to dress the same, you know, they, they, like people did with twins in the 50s and 60s. They dressed them up the same. And, 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 and we were an all-singing, all-dancing family. We were the Jewish Von Trapps of Toronto. And so, you know, they went to, to take a tour of the CBC and the producers of the Billy O'Connor show. Billy O'Connor was an Irish tenor who had the show after the dance show on Saturday nights, and he was the number one variety show in Canada. So the producers came walking out of their studio. They see these two little redheads, and they go, oh, my God, they look just like Billy. They're like miniature versions. They don't sing, do they? And my dad goes, five, six, seven, eight, and the boys <laughs> breaking, I want a girl just. So they got the gig, and they became the uh, uh, special guest star on, on a Billy O'Connor um, Christmas special, and then those guys just turned to my dad and said, "You got any more of those at home?" And that's what, that's how it happened. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. 
Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers, or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, you said you were a singing, dancing family. Explain that. Okay. Again, and I, I don't want to make this all uh, about being Jewish, but, but I, I do want to say that... Don't worry, people, people will hate you anyway for being Jewish. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've already been there. I'll tell, someday I'll tell you the stories from school. But, um, uh, you know, we, there's a lot of song and a lot of, there's a lot of music involved in, in religious ceremonies, in, in festivals, and families getting together every Friday night with Shabbat. There's, you sing things, you sing everything. And so there's always music. But also, my dad played uh, jazz bass in a big band in Canada to work his way through medical school. And my mom was, was concert-level pianist who was too shy to play in public, except in front of the family. So we would get together. My mom would play, my dad would play, and, and, uh, and we'd sing these, you know, sort of old-fashioned songs all together as a family, and we'd sing in harmonies and all that stuff. Well, it wasn't a formal thing. It was just what we did. And when the relatives came, every time the relatives came, my dad would wake us up, literally. We'd come, you know, stumbling down the stairs in our PJs, rubbing the sleep out of our eyes and, and really complaining. But he would say, this moment will never come again. <laughs> so, I, so I go, okay, all right, so we got to sing. So we would sing three or four songs. I would have to do a routine. And then we get, we'd be allowed to go back to bed. Okay. Were your parents born in Canada? Yes. And so their parents came from the old country? Yes. Um, my, my, my mom's father was born in Canada, but only just. Only, I mean, his family had only just arrived. Her mother was born in Russia and, um, and came at the age of three. Okay. So you're growing up. Are you a popular kid? Well, you know, I they skipped me from grade one to grade three because I was, or as Amer- as we say in America, from first grade to third grade, um, because I was I was getting the lessons too quickly and and they didn't think that that year in between was going to be um, valuable to me, so they moved me ahead thinking they were doing me a favor. That's not a favor because what it meant was I was a year. Uh, younger than everybody all the time. And so I hit puberty last, you know, I was still, I had the same experience. I know what you're talking about. Did you? Yeah. So I was was a little fat kid. Everybody picked on, you know, and, and, and it was really when I learned to play the guitar and sing that, um, that I, I created a popularity for myself by showing up at parties and being the cor- kind of tortured artist. You know, I tried it on the piano, but it's hard to carry a piano from party to party. Um, so, you know, I, I picked up the guitar and, um, and the girls loved it. And I just thought, well, this is cool. 
Maybe so how did you, did this. your parents give you piano lessons? Of course. We were a Jewish family. We had exactly. everything Exactly. That's why I know. Okay. And then you, how many years did you take piano lessons? I started, uh, uh, I started piano lessons at the age of five. So I As was, did I. Did you? Yeah. Absolutely. There would be three. There were six of us at once, three on each piano. Oh, wow. Oh, that's like uh, Dr. Terwilliger's, you know, did, did you ever, do you ever see the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T with no, Peter Lynn Hayes? Okay, you got to look this up because it is, for anybody in the music business, anybody who plays or anybody who, who always wanted to play, this is a must-see movie, the 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. And the, the bottom line is, Dr. Terwilliger is a very, is an aggressive uh, music teacher and the kid who is taking lessons from him falls asleep at the piano and this is his nightmare. It's very psychedelic and it's really a brilliant commentary on so many things about music. Anyway, so yes, we took lessons. I learned that. We learned... Can you read music at this point in time? Yes, I can, but I'm not a very good reader. I'm, I'm a slow reader. I can read and I can write, but I'm not like, I mean, the, some people can, can read fly shit and, and play it right. You know, I work with Long Long, who is a concert pianist, um, doing um, a record with him and the two cellos. And uh, we wrote a part for him that was so complicated. It looked like Rachmaninoff. It just was like, as I say, fly shit on the page. I sent it to him in advance so he could practice, and, and little did I know that he never practices. He's just a lazy bum. So he, he um, that's not true. He's a genius. He's not a lazy bum. He doesn't have to practice. He showed up in the studio, put this thing of fly shit up on the piano, and just sat there and just whipped it out. It was like, it was insane. I couldn't believe that anybody could sight read that and not make a mistake. Uh, that's not me. I have to take my time. What inspired you to pick up the guitar? I told you, I needed, I needed to be able to sing my songs to girls. I, you know, when they came to my house, I could sing them at the piano. Which whoa, whoa, whoa. Was actually, so you were writing songs at this point in time? Well, you know, I was writing or I was picking songs from the, you know, the, rep the, the, the public repertoire that were very um, moving. Let's say okay. moving in a polite way. That they would, they would be motivating of young women to, to perhaps look at me in a different light. Okay. So you were a child actor. You said you were not good in school. At what point do you say, hmm, maybe I'll try this music thing? Well, everything in my life has actually been a reaction to something else. It's, it's not that I said to myself, I'm going to be in the music business. I, you know, I did play and I wanted to play. My uncle had a club so I could play in the club. Then I got together with my cousin Nancy and we had a little duo. We were the messengers and uh, and and we were pretty good, except that we lost the high school talent show against a band called the Twin Tone Four, which was the leader of which was Ivan Reitman. And <laughs> and and Ivan and I have never forgotten that, you know, and I've really never forgiven him for it. But but anyway, so, you know, so I would do that. I love playing on stage. That was really great. I didn't know that that was going to be a career on any level. I was still trying to get into um acting. I was still trying to write movies. I was trying to do anything that had to do with, with theater. I loved theater so much. And, um, and that's how I got into the music business. I, I was actually doing a, a play, a musical review. I was the script editor, not the music guy. The music director of the show was Al McMillan. And they decided one day that they wanted a rock uh, score to the show. They wanted, they what wanted year a, are we in? 
This would be 1969. And, um, and so at that exact same time, Michael Cole, who you also know, one of the great promoters of all time, who was my teenage buddy, uh, and I, we co-managed a band called Icarus. Now, he thought that that meant booking them in clubs, and I thought that that meant working on their material. So we were both wrong. Neither of us had any idea what a manager was, but this was a great start. So we, we put them, we shoehorned them into this musical review, and Alan, Alan was going through some stuff at the time, and, and, uh, and I loved the man. I just thought he was wonderful. He actually came to live with us for a while, and I just said, listen, I got you. I'll take it from here. Let me, I'll, I'll put the material in and I'll work it up with a band. And then when you come back, you'll see. And if it doesn't work, you can redo it, whatever you'd like. So in the band Icarus, the lead singer and writer was a guy named Eddie Schwartz, who wrote Hit Me With Your Best Shot. And, um, and so, uh, you know, and, and then we had to go find material. So I went and I, I drove to Ottawa and met with uh, Bruce Coburn and a couple of other artists that were up there. And, and, uh, and a guy who was helping me find material was an, a man named Adam Mitchell, who had played in a band called The Poppers. And he went on to be a fairly famous producer in his own right. Um, anyway, we found the music. We did the thing and it sounded great. And when Alan came back, he looked at me and he said, I want you to meet my partner. He could use a guy like you. So I thought, okay, they need a manager. So I went for the meeting with Jack Richardson, who was Alan's partner in a company called Nimbus 9. At the time, they were doing, uh, Al, um, Jack was producing the Guess Who, and they had the number one record in the world. They had American Woman, which was number one everywhere. So I walked into the office, and, and uh, Jack was very nice, very polite, very down-to-earth, you know, fatherly kind of guy and said, so, you know, what, what, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to be a manager. And he said, really? So what does that, what does that mean? And so I explained to him how it's working on their material, making songs better. <laughs> he said, you don't want to be a manager. He said, you want to be a producer. And that's how it all started. Just uh, doing a little backfill. Traditionally in a Jewish family, and I would know, the children have to go to college so what happened with that? Well, you know, sometimes you're the windscreen and sometimes you're the bug. Right. Sometimes you're the Louisville slugger, but okay. Yeah. But no, what happened to college was I went, I started. I wasn't taking anything useful. It was all sort of, you know, I was taking Italian and economics. How does that work? And, uh, and philosophy. And, and, but there was a drama club, which I joined. And I convinced the dean of the college to give me $5,000 in 1967 to buy a film camera and to start a film club. The college that I went to was the first ever video teaching college in Canada, probably in North America. So what that means is they would do lectures um, they would, they would uh, record them, they would shoot them for television, and then they would be able to play them in the lecture halls all across the country. So this was a big thing. And uh, the, the technicians who worked that TV part of the college, uh, I got to know them all because I started this video film club thing. And I used to pay them out of the money that the dean gave us to stay after school and teach us how to edit, how to shoot, how to do graphics and all that sort of stuff. So, and after a while, after about five months, I got so good at it that they just said to me, you know, why don't you just come and work with us? So I did. And that was the end of your school career? Yes. I left, I left as a student, became staff. 
And uh, didn't you also get married at a very young age? Yeah. Um, I got married at 17. Um, we, we got pregnant at when I was just 16, and she was 17. And then we had to get married, so we got married at 17. And when I say we had to get married, we did decide. We did decide to do it. There was the option offered to us, particularly by um, Arlene's mom, you know, that you, you know, we could think about terminating, but, but we couldn't think about terminating. So for whatever reason, maybe it's just child, childhood uh, idealism, I don't know. But I know that if that had never happened, I, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you. I don't know what I'd be, but it wouldn't be this. Because all of that forced me to um, try to find a way to make a living. And that's, a, that's an amazing motivator, <laughs> you know, when, when you've got a wife and a child and you've got to figure out how to feed them, uh, you start doing things you never thought you, you, or you may never have thought you would do. I sold encyclopedias. I, I became friends with Buddy Abrams, who was the greatest encyclopedia salesman in history. He was the guy who started Encyclopedia Britannica door-to-door. He didn't start the encyclopedia. He started the door-to-door part. And as the guy who started it, he got an override on every set of Encyclopedia Britannicas that sold in the world. Now, being from a Jewish family, you guys had one, and you probably had a set of the American Encyclopedia and the great books of the Western world, right? These were all, you know, we were suckers for for anything that had to do with knowledge and culture. Buddy Abrams became my friend, and, and, and he became my friend because he was my dad's patient, and he loved my dad, but he really loved me. He, was, he gave me the other great lesson of my life. When we were playing chess, which he liked to do, I was sort of saying, I don't know what I'm going to do when I grow up. I was 15 or 16 at the time. I said, I don't really know what I want to do. And he said, well, let me tell you something, kid. No one with your education, your looks, and your background will ever starve. Past that, you got nothing to be afraid of. And I was like, whoa, that's heavy shit. But you know what? He's right. I'm never going to starve. I'm smart. I'm going to figure out a way. I transitioned from being a naturally unsure teenager, especially being the young one, the fat one, the, the other one all the time. I was unsure. I was never the captain of the hockey team. I was never that guy. So I was unsure of where I would fit in. But once I assimilated that, it changed my approach. And then I became like, I don't, I'm, I don't have to worry. I'll try this one. This could work. And if that doesn't, I'll try that one. And so it went. Now, Buddy Abrams was married to a woman from Hawaii named Momolani Reeves, who had been married to a half-Chinese, half-American guy. She was Hawaiian and also herself half-Chinese. She had two sons, Sammy and Victor, who were like my heroes. They were in their 20s. They were like sumo wrestlers, big guys, and they smoked dope. I'd never seen anyone smoke dope. It was so cool. But they were Hawaiian, you know, and they smoked dope. And they they looked like Fu Manchu guys in sumo wrestler bodies. Sammy moved to Beirut where he met a model, tall, beautiful, blonde, um, English woman um, named Patricia, but she called herself Patrick. And they got married and they had a baby uh, that Momi and Buddy had never met. Buddy invited me down to their apartment in, in uh, Fort Lee, New Jersey, right across the river from New York one weekend. And that's when Sammy and Patrick came home with their baby, Keanu. And that's when I met Keanu Reeves. 
wow, this is really, yeah, oh, yeah, it's a good story. And they moved across the street from my, so, you know, we were so close as families. They moved across the street from my studio in Toronto, where I was now a partner in Nimbus 9. And, uh, and Alice Cooper used to stay there and actually did babysit Keanu Reeves, as he claims very often. Okay, how long did you sell uh, encyclopedias for? I, I actually, uh, I didn't do very well at encyclopedias. I didn't last very long. It was like weeks. Seriously, like I was terrible, and 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 I was, uh, and then, you know, I tried magazines. I was just terrible, and the reason I was terrible was because I felt really sorry for the person on the other side of the door. I didn't want to do anything to hurt them, and I could see they couldn't really afford to do what I wanted them to do. So I just stepped away. Okay, so what was paying the bills when you were young with a child? I was writing uh, sketch material for a show on CBC called Sunday Morning. Uh, the producer of which went on to do this musical review and hired me, and that's how I got that gig. So I was doing some comedy writing, and I was playing for peanuts, you know, in in different little clubs and things. And you were uh, living, you and your bride are- We leaving. were still living at my parents' house. Right. Because we could not afford to move out. I mean, when do you ultimately move out of your parents' house? Um, uh, and we had a roommate, by the way. We we had to have a roommate who was my my- buddy from from uh, college who who did the video club with me and all that sort of stuff um so he be he it was a three-bedroom apartment he got the third bedroom and and we moved there when david was two so i was 19 and i was starting to make some money rick and i rick and i by that time we were staff writers for the cbc we were writing a show called how's this for a great title good company colon it's our stuff. <laughs> that took a genius to come up with that. I, gotta, it I just got to like Canada, say, to be honest oh, with you. Oh my God! And and but that show, the the lead actor on that show, singer, actor, singer, dancer, etc., was Alan Thicke, who became a lifelong friend of mine, and uh, and the director of the show went on to do the uh, Johnny Cash show in Nashville, Tennessee, and that was my first trip to Nashville was to go visit him. Which is, that's a long story. <laughs> But a good one. Anyway, so uh, we were writing this series, and, and uh, we were comedy writers. We were, we were part of a team of about 10 writers, I want to say. And, uh, and we were so unruly. This is the CBC. These are people who come to work in a suit and tie, you know. And, they're, and, and they come in at 9 in the morning, and they go home at 6. It's insane. So uh, Rick and I were so crazy. And most of the time on psychedelics of one sort or another. So we were, we were very unruly to the extent that the guy across the hall from our office named Alex Trebek complained about us and had <laughs> us removed so that we were, we, were, we were the only comedy writing team that had to work after hours. We could only come in after 6 p.m. <laughs> Unbelievable. It was, it was great. I loved it. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. 
You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How old were you when you had that fateful meeting with Jack Richardson? Um, I had I had just turned twenty. Um, the the stories, the story had been that I was nineteen, and I believed that for the longest while until I went back and looked at the dates, and I was like, no, 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 that's not possible. So, I was twenty. Okay, so he tells you, son, you need to be a producer. What's the step after that? Okay, so the next step was. Um, he, I, you know, he said, you want to be a producer? And I was like, you're going to have to explain that, sir. So I basically followed him around, and he gave me um, one-on-one classes in what it meant to be a whoa, record whoa, whoa, producer. Whoa, 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 He put you on the payroll? Yes, he hired me. But I, it wasn't that I wasn't doing anything, because I was very good at working on material. I was really good at songs. And, uh, and, and in those days, not nearly smart enough to know that um, I should have been a co-writer <laughs> on the stuff I worked on. But, uh, you know, it doesn't matter. It was a fantastic education, and I got to work with so many different kinds of people. So I would do Jack's pre-production. If there was a band he was working with, he would send me ahead of time. I'd pick the songs, and we'd work on the arrangements, and then we would go into the studio with Jack. And he would be the guy uh, in charge of recording. Or he would come like the last day of rehearsals or something like that. Also, Nimbus also had a partner named Ben McPeak who, who did uh, uh, jingles and, and uh, commercials for a living. So I used to do sessions for him too. Like they would have me, um, I got to do uh, sound-alike uh, material for Coca-Cola commercials. Say, so, okay, this week we want a Joe Cocker song. So we would come up with a way of doing it's the real thing, you know, Joe Cocker style. <laughs> and that was a great training ground too. So you said you followed and took lessons from Jack. 
Yeah. So we had we had to fly to all these places, right? We flew to like, I mean, we worked in Muncie, Indiana, believe it or not, and we had to fly to to Chicago and then and then take a a, a car to the Midwest or something, you know. Uh, so I had a lot of hours with Jack. And during that time, I had a little notebook and I just kept asking questions. You know, that last session we did, you put you put this microphone on the um, on the tom-toms and I didn't see you do that before. Why did you do that? And then he would explain it to me. And literally, he, he, he went right back to basics, including physics, and helped me with that. And then at a certain point, about three, three months or so in, he said, you know what, I'm going to send you to school. So... He paid for me to go to the Eastman School of Music to a, uh, a two-week um, production course being run by Phil Ramone and David Green. This Phil is Ramone. in Rochester. This was in Rochester, New York. It's where I had my first bag of burgers. I'd never, I didn't know such a thing existed, you know, White Castle. And if anybody doesn't know about bags of burgers, you should go to your nearest White Castle and not have them. So... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I went. I went to Rochester, New York, and um, and uh, Phil and David just kind of they liked me and they took me under their wing. You know, I was a quick study. I got what what it was they were talking about, and I was useful. So I was slave labor because not only was Phil teaching a course, but he was also using us as slave labor to help him to record a live album with the Paul uh, um, Paul Winter Consort. So. So, you know, I was like an assistant engineer um, at a time when, um, you know, people like me weren't getting, weren't getting paid. So, um, yeah. So, you know, that, and that was an amazing two weeks because I didn't sleep. They had a console. In those days, we were working in 8-track. So they had a console, an 8-track machine, and tapes of various well-known or, 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 you know, almost well-known bands that you could put on and you could sit at the console and you could mix, which is an amazing way to learn. Like the best way, if you want to learn how to make a record, start by learning how to mix a record. Because once you start putting bits and pieces together, you can see where the issues are with the recording that should have been attended to that may not have been attended to because people just didn't know better. So um, I learned a tremendous amount. Like those two weeks were like two years. Okay, just to stop for a second, uh, back in that era, producers and engineers were very different, whereas once we started hitting the mid-70s and later, there were a lot of people, engineers, who said they were producers, where certainly you come from the school where you can work with the material. But to what degree did you have or get engineering chops? Oh, I had to have them. I mean... Um, to what degree? Well, you know, I'm never the I'm never the smartest guy in the room full of engineers. That's you know, not by a long shot. I just know how stuff works, sort of intuitively and instinctively. But a lot of the time, it was just a simple matter that I didn't sleep and other people had to. <laughs> you know, and I was just like, I can't stop. You know, and I would sit at the console after they left. I think that session with with uh, with Phil and David being able to sit at that console and actually mix somebody else's stuff with no one else around, like that was an amazing experience for confidence building. You get back to Toronto after the two weeks. 
I get back to Toronto and uh, very shortly thereafter, Shep Gordon walks into the offices of Nimbus 9 because he wants that guess who sound for Alice Cooper, which and Alice Cooper, you know, one of the most hated bands in the world <laughs> at the time. And, um, and I'm just so grateful that he did because, you know, he, he wanted Jack to produce. And, and when Jack looked at the pictures of these guys, these five creatures of indeterminate gender and, and, um, uh, you know, something way out of his very middle of the road wheel wheelhouse. He just he didn't want, really want to have anything to do with them. So he actually sent me to New York City to see the band. He said to Shep, being the polite Canadian that he is, and that that I still am to a much lesser extent. Um, he you know he said he said well he didn't just say no. He said okay I'll tell you what I'll send the kid if the kid likes the band then I'll come and see the band. And then Shep said, that's great. And he left. And then Jack looked at me and he said, get rid of them. <laughs> so they sent me to New York to get rid of, to sign somebody else and get rid of Alice Cooper. And it was exactly the opposite. The other person that I went to see didn't move me. I didn't see it. But going into Max's Kansas City on September 8th in 1970, following the laser beams out of the the subway station at Houston and, and, and going around the corner and up the stairway into Max's Kansas City into a sea of spandex and spider eyes into a, a world of, uh, you know, jet black hair, black lipstick, black fingernails and, and, and hugely high boots. They were like these wraiths, these zombies that were floating across the floor. Nobody spoke. They just sort of had a, you know, they had a, a telepathic language among them. And they all knew when I entered the room that there was a hippie in their midst. And this was not, this would not do, you know, but anyway, they put me at a front table and I watched the show. It was, it, it was beyond Inspiring is a, you know, an overworked word, but it was inspiring to me because I saw things there that I had never seen done on a stage. I'd never seen uh, props and lights and sets being used in a rock and roll context like that. And particularly where everybody around was sort of so wraith-like and, and yet they all knew the words. And these were songs that had never been released. So the whole thing was like, it just knocked my socks off. And I ran... I went running up to the dressing room and with no authority whatsoever committed Nimbus 9 to producing the next Alice Cooper album. And then when I got back to my hotel, I didn't sleep at all because I knew that this was, this was not going to be met with good favor. And so I called Alan McMillan first thing in the morning and he just goes, get on the first plane back. You get back here. So I did. And I came running into the building basically begging for my life. And then the, the first words out of my mouth, you don't understand. I said to Jack Richardson, of all people, you don't understand. This was not rock and roll. There were no t-shirts. There were no jeans. They had sets and props and lights and stuff. And everybody knew the words, spider eyes and spandex. And everybody looked the same. And, and it was amazing. And I finally got to the end. And I just said, Let's, this wasn't rock and roll, Jack. This is the beginning of a cultural movement. We have to do it. And Jack said, uh, enough already. He said, if you like it so much, you do it. And that stopped me in my tracks. That was like, I, you know, I just kind of looked at him and said, excuse me. And he's, you know, or in, in Canadian, that would have been sorry. Right. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and Jack said, yeah, you do it. I'm not doing it. So then I had to walk up, you know, I had to take a walk up the street just to figure out, like, did I dare? 
like like this is real this is like this is not being an advanced man for the real guy this is he's he's gonna make me the real guy and i don't know if i can do that and then i got halfway down the block and realized that nobody with my brains and my looks and blah 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 and i just thought what have I got to lose? This is great. This is the greatest opportunity anyone's ever given me. So I came back into the building and I went, I'll do it. You'll be proud. So what were the next steps? Well, the next steps were that I went and rehearsed with them in Pontiac, Michigan. There's lots of wonderful stories and you'll read all about it in my new book entitled, no, I don't have a book, but when I do have a book, you'll read all about it. It was a great leap forward from the previous two albums, okay? Right. They had 18, had Caught in a Dream, etc. How did you make that great leap forward in the material? Well, first of all, they, that, that material was already written when I came. Lucky me. It was at a moment where they'd had two albums to sort of find their way, and then they started to write songs like actual songs and some of them were really good we had a lot of trash too you know there was a lot of material that that got rejected but that's the way of every project you ever do you, you know you may go through hundreds of, of bits and pieces to find the ones that you really really want to spend time on so those songs the ones you just mentioned uh 18 is it my body um which was for me that was the beginning of everything and the, and the first song that we worked on and uh and black juju they'd already had those they just played them differently they played them what happened at the time was they like they didn't know what you had to do to get a song on the radio neither did i honestly i just did you know i just did some quick woodshedding and i had a few notes you know like jack would say well you got to be under three minutes 230 is better so i knew stuff like that right but i also knew that when listening to them play you know they'd lose me for like three minutes in the middle of a song and then they'd come back and it would be different it wasn't the same as the beginning and and everybody was playing lead all the time so my job was to find the essence of the song like what you know where's the power there's always a riff there's always a great riff at, at the center of an Alice Cooper song, whether it's School's Out or whether it's I'm 18. And so where's that? And, uh, and what are we singing? And what are we singing about? I was too stupid to know that words didn't matter. I thought they did. And actually, it turned out I was right. So that's why American Woman was such a big hit. It was just that phrase, American Woman. So I was really focusing on the melody the 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 sort of central riff and um, and the rhythm and and I saw those as three separate tracks that this song would run on at the same time and then they had to be coordinated it had to work they each had to work with the other so it would be powerful and basically what I learned from Tchaikovsky is what I applied to Alice Cooper it's true I know. I haven't said that out loud before, but it is true. It's okay. True. Yeah. So you, you, you've talked uh, previously in this uh, podcast about helping write the songs. Did you help write the songs, would you say? Or you were just helping arrange them? You know, I did help write the songs at, at that time, um, but that was considered to be production or, you know, by anybody but, you know, even me, I thought that was production. I thought okay. That so how how much pre production on that first Alice Cooper album you did, Love It to Death, and how much time did it take to actually record it? 
the the pre-production period was probably in aggregate around um, four weeks, three, four weeks, because we were slow and we were all just learning our craft. Right. So it took me a little a little while to just find well, this begs the question. Did you have to convince Shep and Coop that you could do it instead of Jack? Well, they kept saying, where's Jack? Where's Jack? And uh, and I kept saying he's coming. He's 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 coming. And I'm and and uh, and he'll, he'll love this. And he did come. He came for the. The recording sessions. He was there in the studio and very much a presence. And uh, but um, instead of taking over the console and stepping up to the front and elbowing me to the back uh, couch like like we were doing before, he kicked me forward. And he would basically he he would like kick me in the ass, like literally. I would feel his foot when I was about to do something really stupid or if I'd done something that was already really stupid. And then we, you know, we had this engineer too called Brian Christian, who was like this, this big muscle bound South side Chicago guy looked like a hitman for the mob. And he talked like one too. And, uh, but he was a great engineer. He was a union engineer. This was a union house. So you had to be really careful. And uh, once in a while I would touch the console. He would slap my hand. Literally. So on those first four songs, we did four songs to start because Warner Brothers was not convinced that this team could do this. And they didn't know me from Adam. And even though they got Jack Richardson, they weren't really sure what that meant. But then they heard the first four songs and then we got the green light for the rest of the album. And, and a little bit of time passed between those first four songs and coming back to the studio, by which time I was feeling like, you know, my ideas are not valueless. I think I think we're onto something here. So I started being more aggressive, not with the band, but with with uh, Brian and and Jack. So one time Brian slapped my hand. Get your fucking hand off my console. And I said, it's a console, asshole. <laughs> and I'm the producer on this project. If I want to touch the console, I'm going to touch the console. And he laughed and he just gave me this the biggest bear hug of my life. And uh, and I was in. OK, now I'm in the club. And then it was okay to touch stuff, you know. So the, the actual recording, the question of, about the recording, it took us in, uh, in total three weeks to record and 18 hours to mix. 18 hours? Yes, nonstop. <laughs> That's a different, okay, the record is done. Do you think you have something? Oh, yeah. I, 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 listen, what do I know? This is my first album, right? I loved, you know, I was just in love with myself. I made it. I, was, I survived for openers. And, and, and secondly, you know, like some of the songs were stuck in my head and, and also some professional people who do that for a living looked at me and said, that's really good. And that, all of that co combination of stuff made me feel like a, you know, like, you know, this, this is, this is good. This is going to work. And then, and then, and then, you know, I'm 18 gets broken out of, out of Windsor, Ontario on CKLW, the big eight, Rosalie Trombley, who was the most important music, uh, music director, uh, in radio in North America, believe it or not, because coming out of Windsor, Ontario, they beamed into the Detroit Metroplex. They had a massive audience and, uh, and Alice Cooper's a Detroit band and Shep was really smart, and uh, sent a limousine across the border to go pick Tim, her son, who later worked for me, by the way, 
when he grew up. But this, that's another story. So he went and picked Tim up by limousine from school and brought him home and gave him the single to give his mom. <laughs> and Tim and Tim and his sister played it, and they fell in love with it. They were the ones who said, "Mom, you got to play this record." And that's how it happened. It just and that, from that point on, we were golden. Okay, between "Love It to Death" and "Killer," did you, what did you work on? Um. Well, I had a couple of things. I mean, right after Love It to Death, um, I, I did a, a New York record um, that nobody ever heard and probably never will for an artist called David McHugh. It was a great experience uh, because it was my first time working with orchestra in a studio and, and all session players, which really opened my eyes. Um, and I did that with David Green, who was, again, a wonderful mentor and teacher. But the record was terrible. And then I did a, then I did a record with um, uh, Mitch Ryder in a band called Detroit, out of Detroit. They loved their manager, Barry Kramer, who was also the publisher of Cream Magazine, um, founder and publisher of Cream Magazine. He loved the sound of that Alice Cooper record, and he was the one who decided, you know, for his band, for, for, Mitch, for Billy, it's his real name, Billy Levise, Mitch Ryder, and the band Detroit, they wanted me. So... They hired me, and part of what uh, what I did on that record was a cover of a Lou Reed song called "Rock and Roll." Was that was that your idea or their idea? The song itself was I I think I think I don't I don't know how we you know I think we sat in a circle and somebody you know we picked all the material because Billy okay. was not a writer right we had one or two uh, we didn't have that many originals so we were doing a lot of cover stuff. Um, was it my idea? Probably not. Because, because at that time, I wasn't really that, I wasn't much of a Velvet fan. And, That's why uh, I'm asking, yeah. Yeah, I wasn't a Velvet fan. I didn't, I didn't really know them. Um, I was still just trying to find my way out of the bull rushes, man. I was like, I was a folky for, you know, it's like five minutes ago, I was playing, you know, Kumbaya, my Lord. Now here I am, you know, singing, you know, bodies need their rest. You know, <laughs> so anyway, the, you know, we did this thing and, and we had just hired Steve Hunter. In fact, the band picked him up out of a club in Decatur, Illinois, while they were doing touring and brought him back to Detroit and just announced him to me. They go, by the way, this is our new guitar player. And this, he was this like ratty looking little guy with Coke bottle glasses and, a, and an SG and a teeny little amp. And he kind of sat in the corner. He was very, very shy. Then he kind of played on his own and all that stuff. And um, one day in the, in the middle of rehearsal, I, was just, I just thought, okay, this, you know, we got to do something about this. So I, I stopped the rehearsal. We had, we had a, a, a double stack of marshals that one of the other guys used and we hooked him up together and we brought Steve to the middle of the room and and I plugged him into the double stack of marshals and when we took it when we went from standby just to on the hum alone was louder than the band had been <laughs> and and Steve was like oh my god and then he started to play the you know there's nothing quite like having that piece of wood and metal in your hand and being able to make that much noise from it and having such power, you know, the sustain alone, it was just, it changed his life. That moment changed his life. He started playing like Hendrix. And he was good enough. Uh, you know, this, he didn't just learn it that moment. He'd always known it, but he couldn't, he didn't have the confidence to step out and do it. And then when he heard that sound, it just moved him so much. And everybody from Cream Magazine, everybody that was in that whole building, including Dave Marsh, who might be one of the sourest people in music, Dave Marsh 
came running in and went, wow, that's amazing about Steve Hunter. So he was our guy. So when we came to rock and roll, I needed a riff. That's what I had learned. Good songs had a riff. I needed a good riff. And Steve Hunter came up with da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da-da. And, and so we cut the whole song. We did a fairly good job of it, though I really screwed up the recording of the, of the snare drum, which bothers me to this day. Um, but I'm just about to make up for it, actually. I, I, I just uh, stopped mixing rock and roll, my new version, to do this podcast. <laughs> it's true. It's the truth. And Steve's on it. And uh, Joe Bonamassa, what a team. Oh, my God. They're so good. Anyway, so, so uh, we cut this thing, and it came out. And apparently, um, that was the best cover of any of his songs that Lou had ever heard. And that's how I got to work with Lou Reed. He said, okay, but Berlin them. came out in 73, yes. and Killer came out at the end of 71. Yes. So this, uh, so you... You know, and me, I, I think actually we may have done Killer before we did, before I did Detroit, uh, the Detroit album. Okay, so, so let's Detroit go back was to... 72. Uh, let's go back to Killer. All I know about Killer was Alice Cooper was a joke, and I read this unbelievable review boxed off in Rolling Stone by Lester Banks. Lester Banks, who said was, it, was a, it was a tragic waste of plastic, right? Was that the one? No, no. This was the one that he said, this is unbelievable. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> and really, I had to look it up because he say He went on and on. And I literally, this, you know, people say they bought albums based on the cover. I never did that. I right. didn't buy But the review was so amazing that I didn't know whether it was a joke or real. So I had to buy the album. You dropped the needle and first heard under my wheels the sound and the humor involved and then it went into be my lover and ultimately halo of flies it was like unbelievable so tell us about the creation of that record well i think that what what that record really did was it it um uh it incorporated their actual true personalities like the first one we were trying to be something we were trying to have a hit record and we were trying to play by the rules so to speak although there were certain things that we did where you know we just weren't going to we just weren't you know no matter you know people said black juju you can't put that on a record and we were just like oh yeah we are because it's great and we love it so it's going but um when it came time to killer it was more to do killer it was more about um the stuff that we hadn't been able to do, that if we could figure out a way to do it so that it, it made a good record, but it still had the sense of humor, it still had the theatricality, it still had all these different characters that Alice would play on stage that were frowned upon by normal record makers, right? So, so this gave it, you know, we had a broader palette and, and, and we had leeway, we had license because we had a successful album just behind us. This was only nine months later uh, that we, that this thing came out. So, so we were already, we were riding a wave and people were listening and that allowed us to do some things that we had never done before. Allowed me to start using orchestral instruments that I actually wrote the parts for. And honest to God, I didn't even know the range of the cello before I had to call Alan McMillan at the office and go, Alan, like, What's the low note of a cello? You know, so so I could figure out what to write. You know, and um, and, and 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 I wrote this. You know, the French horn part uh, for um, 
uh, Halo of Flies, I think it was, but I, I may be wrong about which song it is. And But there were two great French horn players, one of which was Dale Clevenger, who was the principal horn for the Chicago Symphony. And here he is in the studio with Alice Cooper and this kid, this hippie from Canada, who doesn't know his ass from his elbow. And he looked at the chart and he looked at me and he said, I, I don't think that's what you really want me to play. <laughs> and I said, well... Uh, what do you think I want you to play? <laughs> and he did some corrections of accidentals and things that you, you know that I got wrong, and 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 then he played it, and I learned right that moment, you know what, you know the power notes for the French horn and stuff like that. All of which goes into the memory bank. All of which, at some point in your life, becomes useful. Okay, so then let's go back to the uh, <laughs> Lou Reed story. So Lou hears uh, Detroit's version of rock and roll. It's the favorite cover he has of his material. So he tracks you down? Yeah, he tracks me. They track me down. Um, uh, Dennis Katz, who was his manager at the time, found me in Toronto, and they invited me to come to um, Massey Hall to see Lou play live. The opening act that night was a band called Genesis. And uh, I had become friends with the a uh, number of the DJs at Chum FM, which was like our, this was our FMer in Toronto. You know, in those days, it was experimental radio. They played, the, the DJs played what they wanted to play and they found things. They went to record stores and bought something at four o'clock in the afternoon and it was on the air by 10 o'clock at night. So they'd been playing Genesis and and I I was very impressed with just the complexity of it, the musicianship, everything about it, the 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 sound of it and the sound of of the lead vocal. So I wanted to go see this band. So I said to, to Dennis, look, I, you know, if you don't mind, I'd like to get there in time for the opening act. He said, no, no problem. So we went and we saw Genesis. And by the time Peter Gabriel rose up on an elevator from beneath the stage with a flower on his head, and he'd already sung um, Watcher and a couple of other things, like by that, by that time, I was just me I, like beyond mesmerized. My jaw was in my lap and it was everything I could do to not just rhapsodize to the, to the manager of the guy I'm really supposed to be seeing about this other band. So I was just trying to be careful and, you know, to keep it under control. And then Lou Reed came out and that was another animal altogether. He, he, animal is a good term. He was like a feral creature. He owned that stage. He, he was, he was dangerous he was. He was scary, you know, and and, uh, and 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 at the same time, he seemed to be completely unconcerned with the audience in front of him. He didn't give a shit whether people were clapping, not clapping. He was just doing his show. So when it was over, I filed it away and I said, I, I am honored to work with Lou Reed. Thank you, Dennis. And to myself, I said, but get me that kid with the flower on his head. OK, did you meet Peter Gabriel that evening? No. Okay, so now you make a deal to work with Lou Reed. Tell us the next steps. The next step, well, the next step was, you know, he came to my house. And uh, you know, we met after the show. We went to my house and we sat on the floor of, uh, of the living room. Uh, he played guitar and he played me some songs. And I had been doing my research. So before I went to see him, I, I, by that time, then I did know the Velvets, and I knew everything he'd written in every album he'd done. So uh, he sat down on the, on the floor, and he started to play what he was thinking of for this new project. He wanted an anti-transformer. 
he, he you know, in a way, the, the uh, commercial success of Walk on the Wild Side really bothered him because it's not who he saw himself as. And people then tried to make him a, a, a rock star or a pop star, and he did not want that on any level. So he wanted to make an anti-transformer record, and, and he started playing me these songs. They were good. They were Lou Reed songs. Of course they were good. But they didn't seem to have any real point of view. And, and, um, and I just didn't, you know, for me, they were missing some of the drama and the, uh, uh, the evocative qualities of some of the other things that he had written before. And, and so I said to him, you know, look, listen, these are good, but every once in a while, more often than most anybody else that I've listened to, you tell a whole life in two minutes and 40 seconds. And that, to me, that's magic. Like, why can't we do something like that but expand it? Because I always find myself saying, well, what happened to that guy? Or what happened to those two people? And I said to him, like that song you wrote called Berlin. I've often thought, whatever happened to those two people? I said, we should think about doing something like Berlin and make a story out of it. And then I said, wait a minute. We shouldn't think about doing something like Berlin. It's your fucking song. Let's do Berlin. Why don't we do that? Why don't we take Berlin? Why don't we take the beginning of the story? And why don't we take it to where those two people would have ended up? And he loved that. He was like, he just stared at me for a minute. And he just said, give me a few weeks. And, and that was it. And he left. And about four weeks later, he came back and played me Caroline Says on, my, on, the, on the living room floor in that same position. And I got goose flesh. I was like, wow, this is, this is heavy stuff. This is really powerful. And, and I said to him, give me a few weeks. So he gave me the songs. And then I went into the studio. And for the first time ever in my career, I didn't have a band to work with. I couldn't say, try this, play that, do this, do that. I had nothing. I just had me. So I went into the studio we were building. It wasn't even done yet. It just had a piano in the middle of the room. And I sat there at the piano and I just imagined what the songs ought to be like. And then I started playing them for myself. Like, like this is how I hear it. I'll say that again. Like, this is how I hear it. This, this is... This is where the bass would go, and these are the big shots. Here's the riff, that sort of stuff. And then I, I got Alan McMillan to come in, and I said, Alan, I can't write this down. I, I'm, I'm way too slow, and it'll disappear before I, before I ever get it written. I'll forget. So would you mind, please, help me with this? And so he, he started writing it down, and then we fleshed it out. And I said, you know, what, what if we had an orchestra? Like, what if we really had an orchestra? And they played, you know, da-da-da, and... and and he started writing that down. It was not like the scene from Amadeus. Alan and I were collaborating. He wasn't stealing. And um, we were collaborating. He came up with great ideas. He helped me so much in that moment. So that by the time Lou and I got back together, I could sit at the piano and play him the record. And he could hear it. He heard it. And he loved it. So we took that, the combination of these 
couple of weeks for each of us, and we went to London to cut the record. All with studio, well, actually all with guest performers. Some of them had never done studio work before. It included Steve Hunter, who I, I loved and could count on in just about any circumstance. It also included the late, great Jack Bruce, who I've, I learned to love. He was difficult, but he was amazing. Um, and, and I had uh, uh, B.J. Wilson from Procol Harum. Barry Wilson played his last session on that before he died, uh, uh, you know, uh, an untimely death. And, and I had um, uh, Stevie Winwood on, on, the, on the song called The Kids. Stevie Winwood and I played harmoniums facing each other. We were playing pedal harmoniums and playing with each other's part. And, and uh, I know I'm forgetting other people. Oh, and Gene Martinek, who was an amazing uh, musician from Toronto, who was also a student of Ligeti. And he's the guy who came up with that atonal uh, choir thing that to sound like the moment of death. Anyway. Uh, as you could tell, it was an exciting experience. <laughs> yeah. Sounds expensive. Was it expensive? It wasn't. No, 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 no. We worked fast. We were really fast. We did not spend a lot of money. Nobody would give you a lot of money in those days. Not like Okay, the record comes out, and to my memory, especially coming after a hit, reviews were not charitable. They were, well, they went both ways. There was one review that said Sgt. Pepper of the 70s, which was completely untrue and, and inappropriate. But, but, the, but the reviewer just loved the record to pieces. And then there were others who said that I had destroyed Lou's career and he would never recover. And um, yeah, so it, you know, definitely got a reaction, that one. Like there, there was nobody who was on the fence about Berlin. They either loved it or they hated it. But it was, also, it was also an extremely difficult process for both of us. He was going through a really rough period of time. I, I was, you know, I was too young to be able to um, resist temptation during the making of the thing. So I started, I started, you know, doing drugs along with some of the other people. And, and, uh, and then I suffered when we stopped because I didn't know that you would feel bad afterwards, you know, <laughs> and, and, oh, I felt horrible. And, and, and also just the emotion, the emotion in, tied up in it. Like every song is a, you know, a melodrama. And I had to listen to those sounds like it's okay. Any listener that wants to complain about listening to Berlin, you only had to hear it once. I had to hear it thousands of times. And, and those, you know, getting the kids, getting the screaming kids, you know, and then making it sound like that. That was, you know, it was intense. My, I did not torture my children. My son, David, uh, was... Uh, five and a half, I think, at the time. And Joshua was like two. And I told David the story. I said, okay, I want you to go outside. I want you to pound on the door. I need to record this because I'm doing a story about a kid and his mom is in the kitchen and she can't hear him. So what I want you to do is, is knock as hard as you can and yell, mommy, 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 until she comes out. He said, okay. So I had a Nagra, a little portable tape machine on the other side of the door. And David starts pounding, yelling, mommy. I had a microphone on his side and a microphone on my side. So I got this, the real sound of the door pounding. And Joshua had followed him outside. Joshua was like two. He didn't know what was going on. But he, and you can even hear him if you ever solo that track where he goes like, mommy. like in other words, <laughs> why are we calling mommy? She's right there, you know. But then he starts yelling. And, and so then I got the two of them yelling, mommy, mommy, pounding. And I took that to the studio and put it through 
you know, basically like a cheese grater. You just make it sound horrible. It just, I just compressed it and distorted it and compressed it more and distorted it more until it was so in your face and so uh, overwhelming emotionally that it would bring normal people to tears. And it did. Like there were, uh, one, one, of, one of Lou's assistants went running crying out of the control room when we first played the album. Was Lou happy and was Lou happy after the record came out? I think that I I think that Lou was um, relieved. I, he was always proud of it, and he didn't like it's Lou. He didn't give a shit what the critics said. He didn't care. But it was such a gut wrenching experience for him, one that he w- never forgot and valued for his entire life, and one that knit us together as as really deep, dear, true friends, like real friends. For the rest of his life, for you know, that so he was proud of it. He admired it, but he never wanted to hear it again. He said, <laughs> okay. he said, he said, let's just lock it away in the closet, and uh, and we won't have to do that again. Now he ultimately, after that, goes on the road, prowling the stage in a very rock version of all that came before with Steve Hunter and Dick Wagner. Did you have anything to do with that? That was my house band. So that included Penty Glenn, or Whitey, we call him Whitey Glenn, and uh, Prakash John, who had played in the Mandela, and Joey Chirovsky, who was the keyboard player of the Mandela, and was one of the greatest keyboard players I ever worked with until he uh, lost his mind, got married to a woman, and ran into the woods and never came back. He actually became a very, he actually became a very successful uh, uh, lumberman. Like, seriously. <laughs> anyway, so a forester. That's the word I was looking for. So, yes, yeah, so that was kind of my house band. Those guys plus Wagner and Hunter. And um, all of them played on so many different things. I mean, Joey and um, and Steve and, and Dick as well also played on Peter Gabriel's solo album. And, and anyway, so, yeah. So, Lou got... Lou, he liked the sound of those people. He certainly knew what Steve was doing because he'd been a fan of Steve since rock and roll. And, um, and it may have been Steve that said, Hey, look, I'm, I'm, I'm playing a lot with this group of guys, you know, like we should get together. I, I don't know. I don't know who the original idea was, but these were all people that were linked, um, basically through Nimbus. Now, ultimately decades later, you did a performance of, uh, Berlin. Yes. How did that come together? Because Lou, my friend, and I were um, across the street from his house having dinner, and and Julian Schnabel, the the artist and film director, walked in, and uh, a friend of Lou's, but he had never met me before. And when Lou said, "You know, this is Bob Ezrin," he got on his knees in front of the two of us, and he held our hands, and he just said, "Now you listen to me," he said, "Berlin is why I'm an artist." He said, Berlin is what I played when I started for work, and I still play it. And you two, you have to promise me that you will do it live. We'd had that conversation many times in the past, Lou and I, and we, we, we always came away saying, yeah, we got to do it, we got to do it, and then he would get busy, I'd get busy, and we wouldn't do it. So we said, we'll do it, and then we got busy and didn't do it. But but. Uh, Susan Feldman, who was the artistic director of St. Anne's Warehouse in Brooklyn, which is a really great alternative art stage, a place where a lot of stuff 
uh, percolates. Uh, she called, and maybe it was Schnabel who gave her the idea, but she wanted us to do Berlin live at St. Anne's. Lou called me. We conferenced Schnabel in. Schnabel agreed to be uh, the show artistic director or designer, whatever it was. In. And then it became actually a film that uh, produced by another great friend of mine, Stanley Buckthall, um, who I almost got involved with when he was doing the biosphere. And Stanley has, uh, he's got that uh, film called Spaceship Earth about the biosphere. He was, he was the, uh, he owned the marketing rights to the, all that stuff. So it's, it's a very small world. It's all, all these roads lead to the same place. So we all decided to do it. And I brought first, first call, Steve, you got to do the show. And then, um, and then we put together a band made up of some of Lou's touring band, his existing touring band. And we had Steve and then some of my people and, and, uh, and Anthony, who is now, now a noni, Anthony and, uh, and Sharon Jones from Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings. They were the backing vocals. We had a children's choir to do the whole Ligeti segment. And we had a small orchestra on stage, all dressed. We, we wanted all the orchestra to be dressed like a, like a, cocktail band, like a bar mitzvah or a wedding band. They were all in light blue jackets, dinner jackets, and they had little music stands that were the same color. And um, during rehearsals, I had to conduct because Lou was just, he hadn't played this stuff in like decades and decades. He kind of knew it, but he was nervous about it. And he wasn't quite sure about entrances and exits and stuff like that. And the band also needed uh, coaching. So I was, I was conducting the rehearsals. But as we were getting closer to the, you know, to opening night, Lou just looked at me and just goes, you're on stage. And I, I was saying, no, no, you know, that's not really supposed to be my job. And he goes, no, you're on stage. So I said, OK, I'll be on stage. There was one jacket left. It was a uh, extra large, and I put it on. It looked like I was wearing my dad's dinner jacket, like my dad's powder blue tuxedo. And and of course now I'm going to be having my back to the audience. So I said to Schnabel, "You got to do something on the back of this thing. Like I can't just be this this sea of bouncing blue uh, on stage. It'll be a terrible distraction." So he wrote the word Berlin down my back on the back of this thing in paint, and I still have that jacket. It's probably worth like. Who knows? Half a million dollars. <laughs> he's a very he's a very famous guy. There's no way I'm selling that. Jacket. Right. Okay. Let's go back. Meanwhile, you have what I believe to be your first hit with "Schools Out." So tell us how that comes together. Well, eighteen was a hit, and under my wheels, they were just they just weren't number ones. But they were schools, FM. They were FM hits. No, they were AM. They were AM hits. I don't want to. I don't want to argue about their success. All okay. I can tell you is schools okay, out Bob. was a gargantuan okay. success. Okay, schools out was a bigger success. I'll give yes. you that. It was, and it was. It was wider. Really, it was. You know, the album "Billion Dollar Babies" was really what it blew out worldwide. But yeah, schools out was amazing. Shep called me up, and he said, um, "The guys just they're they're working on this idea, and it's called schools out, and we gotta we gotta record this." This is going to be a hit. This, this, I, I can tell you this is going to be a hit. We got to get it done before school ends. And I, I'm like, okay. So I came out to LA and we had that riff, which was Glenn Buxton's riff. And School's Out was what Leo Gorsi used to say to Satch and the, and the, on the um, Bowery Boys when he would say something stupid. Leo Gorsi would slap his hat off his head and go, School's Out, Satch. 
School's out, wake up, you know? So that's where the, the term school's out came from because Glenn Buxton, the lead guitar player, if anything, he was a Bowery boy in life, in his real life. And um, sadly, he was a tragic Bowery boy who, uh, you know, uh, drank himself to death. But uh, at that time, he was, he was hot and he was doing, you know, he came up with a great riff, like one of the all-time most notable guitar riffs. And... Um, and then we started working on, you know, well, what can we do? We want to make it school-like. And we came up with the no more pencils, no more books. And that, that was a really good section to sort of knit the, help to knit the song together. And we worked on the lyrics, you know. We, we, we got no class. We got no innocence. Uh, no, we got no class. We got no principles. I love that. And that's kind of a, you know, that's an example of the kind of ironic um, double entendre that that is in almost all of Alice Cooper's lyric writing. Like I have to say, Bob Dylan said this, and I agree that Alice Cooper is is maybe the most underrated great <laughs> lyricist in rock. That people don't realize how brilliant his lyrics are. But anyway, so the, the song came together. It came very quickly, and um, and then we had to to then we had to scramble and put together the whole album, which we did again very quickly. In New York. Okay, Bob. uh, This is what I think we should do. Why don't we close it for now as a first part and then get back to Kiss and Peter Gabriel and Pink Floyd the Wall and Fish and so many of your more recent adventures. Sound good to you? Oh, my God, Bob. You know, yeah. Talk about slave labor. (laughs) None of these victims of Bob Lefsitz, I want all the listeners to know, get paid to do any of this stuff. We have to give up like hours, sometimes days of our schedule. Some people come by mule train. They have to get all the way out to L.A. They're not allowed to record unless they go into this one particular room at a particular time, and they have to give Bob two hours. So when you add in travel time and all that stuff, it could have taken me a week to do this. Thankfully... We're actually confined to our quarters, so I was able to do this by remote technology. That's good. I'll do it. Okay. Till next time, when we do more with Bob Ezrin. It's the Bob Left Sets Podcast. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do, too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cash back on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern-day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. 